Good morning, everybody. Welcome to my favorite church in the whole world. My name is Alan, and uh, so glad that you are here. I hope that some of you during that song were not just singing uh, words, but were thinking, I want a breakthrough in my life. I want God to do a miracle in my life. That's what we're going to talk about essentially today as we wrap up our series on the exile. Not much stirs up excitement in the local church like a four-week series on the exile. Can I get a, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. How many of you woke up this morning? The first thing you thought when you woke up was, yes, more exile. Come on, let me hear from you. A little, okay, yeah, all right. Good for you, liars. Okay, so, so for those of you who are new with us or perhaps haven't been paying attention, let me just let you know or remind you what the exile is. It is the greatest Bible story you've never heard of. And what I mean great is not that it is fantastic. It's actually a, 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 a rough story, but it's great in that it is, it is huge. It covers about a 1,000 years in the Old Testament journey, and, and almost half of the Old Testament is about the exile. It is talking about prior to or during or after the exile. All of the prophets primarily are talking about this exile story. It's the story of God saying to his people in ancient Israel, saying, saying you, if you don't change your ways, if you don't change from the path that you're on and turn back to God, if you don't continue to go after other gods and do sacrifices that are, that are awful, if you don't continue to do that stuff, then you will get kicked out of Jerusalem. You will get kicked out of the promised land that was promised to you and provided to you by God. It's part of the huge Old Testament story. You will get kicked out. That was what God was saying over and over through the prophets. The people did not listen, and God had to show tough love to the Israelites who were acting like teenagers and had to follow through on it. God had to follow through on it because he is a good and loving father. So the exile happened. The exile, metaphorically, is, is it represents the consequence of sin. And all of us, are we may not be familiar with the exile story, but we are familiar with the consequence of sin. Some of us are in exile here this morning. That there is a separation in your life between you and God or a separation between you and some key relationships in your life. Perhaps there is, it is a time of waiting. The exile can be a time of of waiting, and we don't like to wait, waiting for healing, waiting for hope, waiting for an answer, waiting for God to show up. The exile is, is something we're all familiar with, and we don't care for it all that much. Last week, we looked at the first word that God says to those in exile in Isaiah chapter 40. There's a transition between Isaiah chapter 31 is, the, is when the exile happens, chapter 39, then the beginning of chapter 40, God says, comfort Comfort my people. That the story is that God says, warning, 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 please, please, there's a cliff coming around the corner. Warning, slow down, warning, warning. And then when we cross the line, the first word God says is, comfort, comfort my people. But what we're talking about today is, how do we get out? Okay, comfort and hope in the midst of the exile, great, that's fantastic. But how do we get out? How do we get out of the exile? How do we go back home? We're, we're in some other place. We want to go back home to Jerusalem. How do we make that happen? How do we experience restoration? That's how we're wrapping up this series as we look at a restoration story 
as a part of the Old Testament journey. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I do pray for a breakthrough here that, that, um, that there are some people here in this room who are on the verge of a breakthrough, who are just on the very edge. And so, God, I pray that there's something happens here today, some part of your presence, your experience, your power here in this room that nudges people from just considering what restoration might look like to experiencing full restoration in you. God, would you come and do what you want to do in hearts and minds here in this room? We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Your exile and my exile are metaphorical. But I want to start off with the actual exile, the actual El Guapo. The actual exile, it, it had a climax in 586 B.C. when the mighty city of Jerusalem, the city of David, was taken over. It was wiped out. It was burned down and, and just crumpled down to a pile of stones. Do you remember, can you recall, who, what group of people came and wiped out Jerusalem? You don't need to say it out loud. I just invite you to just think in your head, do I know? Do I know who that, who that is, what group that is? The northern kingdom was taken over by the Assyrians, and the southern kingdom was taken over by the Babylonians. It was the Babylonians who wiped them out. The Babylonians. Maybe you remember this song from a few years back. Sing it with me. You ever feel like you're in a dance club by yourself? <laughs> Awkward. Okay, so that's, that's Boney M. Do you recognize Boney M? This is a great band. I believe, I don't have statistics or facts on this, but I believe we are the only church in America that listened to Boney M this morning. Yes, yes. Boney M. This is a great song. By the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down, hey, we wept. When we remembered Zion, Zion is another word for Jerusalem. So this is a song, this is, it's about this story of people being exiled into Babylon. One of the fascinating, fascinating things about Babylon, this mighty nation that actually took out the city of Jerusalem, it didn't even last long. It was about 50 years later that Babylon was wiped out. That's, that's all that they were around for. They, they came in and they did that one kind of task and that's all they were really known for. They were wiped out by the Persians. The Persians came in and then the king of Persia at that time became the most powerful person in the world. And the, the main advisor, the trusted advisor to the king of Persia, the most powerful person in the world, was a Jewish man named Nehemiah. Nehemiah was um, he was born in Babylon, which became Persia. He was born there. He was not one of the original exiles. He was Jewish, but he did not come from Jerusalem because he, that, that was too long ago for him. That was decades prior to him. So he was second or third generation born in Babylon, but he was Jewish, loved God, knew the story, and committed to God. He knew about what was happening in Jerusalem. He actually had a brother who went to Jerusalem, came, gap, came back and gave him a report saying how awful things were going in Jerusalem, that, that the, 
there were piles of stone and rubble and that nothing had been, re, uh, you know, the walls had not been rebuilt yet. And so Nehemiah felt compelled to do something about it. And so at great risk to himself, he said to the king of Persia, the most powerful person in the world, his boss, who had, had provided for him in tremendous ways, he said, can I leave my post? Can I leave and go to Jerusalem to help with the restoration of this great city. This was a risky thing for him to do, for him to ask the king, is it okay? And the king, God, God used the king and spoke through the king, and the king of Persia said, yes, yeah, I want you to do that. In fact, he gave him protection for the journey, and he gave him resources in order to make this happen. So Nehemiah heads over to Jerusalem, and he finds that it's, it's a difficult situation there, just as his brother had reported. That the people, the remnant who had remained there, they, they, were, uh, they were struggling. They were very poor. That what happens with an exile is that the very best, the educated, the brightest of the community, they were taken out and sent to the other countries. That's why Daniel and other people like that who were part of the exile were sent to the other areas. They were some of the best and the brightest. But those who were not the best and the brightest remained in Jerusalem. And they were poor and indebted to neighboring nations, which is very much against Jewish culture. That... The Old Testament says we, we will not be, we will lend to others, but we will not be indebted to others. And here they were. It's hard to gain ground when you're indebted to neighboring nations. So Nehemiah came in and used his own resources, his own money to help his people get out of debt in Jerusalem. He's a good dude. Nehemiah was a good dude. Because he was sent by the king, he had the opportunity to live and eat like a king. But he chose not to do that. He wanted to be with the people. And, and so he lived and ate with the poor people of Jerusalem. And he modeled something amazing for them. And they grew to trust him. He was a good guy. He wrote a book in, that, we, uh, that is part of the Old Testament journey that I want to take a look at today. That is uh, this story of Nehemiah. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there. Nehemiah is about in the, in the middle of the Bible. If you open your Bible to the middle, you're probably going to land on Psalms. If you go to the left, you'll find Nehemiah. Before we start to read, I just want to explain something about the Old Testament that might be helpful for some of you. That The way I like to think of the stories in the Old Testament is I like to think chronologically. Most of us naturally like to think chronologically. So the way I like to tell the story is that the first half of the Old Testament is the foundation story. It's the, it's the, develop, it's the, um, the development and the rise of the nation of Israel. And it has both the story and the writings. So, so the foundation story is Moses and freeing the people from slavery in Egypt. And then they get into the promised land and they start to develop in the promised land. They get King David, who's awesome, and then King Solomon, who's awesome. That's the story. Nearly awesome. They're like, you know, imperfect leaders. And then we have the writings that are a part of the foundation story. David wrote Psalms and Solomon wrote uh, most of Proverbs. And so these are the writings from the foundation part of the story. Chronologically, then, we have the exile story, which is the story of the divided kingdom and a nation that struggles generation after generation after generation that are, that are told they must turn their way or they will be exiled. This is the story we're looking at in this series. 
It also has writings. Those are all the prophetic writings of Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, etc. That's the chronological journey. But that's not the way the Bible lays out the Old Testament. The Old Testament is laid out like this. It goes foundation story, then exile story. Then it goes to the foundation writings and the exile writings, which is why the book of Nehemiah, even though it's at the end of the story, it's found in the middle of the Old Testament. So, for those of you who checked out for the past five minutes, it's okay, it's totally okay, just come back. Hopefully there's, hopefully we'll kind of keep uh, moving here a little bit. So, so Nehemiah, uh, he goes back to Jerusalem and it is not an easy task for him to be a part of the restoration process in the city of Jerusalem. What I want to do is I want to jump to chapter 6. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 6. I want to look at a phrase that we will be hanging the rest of the message on here this morning. Chapter 6, verse 9, Nehemiah writes, he, he wrote this book, telling this story. He said, um, they, this was the opposition he was experiencing when he got there, they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now, strengthen my hands. Strengthen my hands, Nehemiah says. I have heard recently from, from multiple sources, and then I looked up a number of articles, etc., that there's a, there's a growing understanding of the significance of hand strength uh, in terms of, of our health, of our overall health. That there have been a, been a number of studies over the years that they can determine what your health, uh, you know, the, what it looks like in terms of your future health based on your hand strength. We have the greatest hand strength in our 30s. Way to go, those of you who are in our 30s. And it kind of uh, tapers from there. But when we have a super weak hand strength, that is a major indicator that we will not have good resistance to diseases like heart disease and cancer, etc. It's just this growing uh, significant connection to this. Hand strength is a big deal, which kind of makes you want to squeeze a tennis ball every once in a while, just kind of to build up your hand strength and take care of this. Anybody, anybody want the tennis ball to, uh, to, uh, uh, to, okay, right there, you ready? 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 Look out, look out. Okay, bad throw, good. Okay. Good catch. You use good hand strength. Okay, good. Okay. So, so, so if you get bored for the next 15 minutes, you, at least you got something to do. There we go. Give yourself some hand strength there. We all have, we share this value for hand strength. You know, we're taught at a young age, when you go to meet somebody uh, that you want to give a nice, firm handshake, right? Yeah, see, that's out. Back off a little bit. Okay, so, so, so there's, we're taught, you want to give a firm handshake. You want to go, you don't want to go too strong where you crush somebody's hand, but you don't want to be, you know, kind of soft hand. There's this place in the middle, a nice, firm handshake. I do some interviews with people who come to work here, and if, if somebody comes up to me, and at the beginning of an interview, they come in with one of those limp hands, they come in with a limp hand for the handshake, I just say, um, we're done here. Uh, uh, you know, uh, thanks for coming by, but I'm not going to be interested. I mean, I'm not going to hire somebody who's got one of those limpy hand things unless there's a physiological thing wrong with them. They should have, you know, done an elbow thing or something or whatever because uh, we just, we understand there's something about the hand strength that there's a connection with us. I love this phrase, strengthen my hand, because it combines the two parts that are necessary in the restoration process. 
that strengthen my hands involves both God's role and my role in the restoration process. Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem and he doesn't just, just get there and say, uh, uh, hey, uh, God, thank you for setting me up. Thanks for the resources from the king of Persia. Uh, I got this. I'll take care of it. I will build the wall. Uh, I'm ready to go. I'll take care of everything. Nor does Nehemiah get there and say, God, I appreciate you building the wall. I'm going to sip on this little margarita in Jerusalemville while you take care of business, right? He doesn't just sit back and let God do all the work. It's this combination of I'm going to use my hands and I need God's strength. It's my hands. I'm doing the work. I'm involved in this and God's strength. God, strengthen my hands in the restoration process. What I want to do with the rest of our time is go back and look at the Nehemiah story and see a number of, of examples of how Nehemiah really walked out this idea of God strengthen my hands in the restoration process. Jumping back to chapter 1, at the beginning of this book, Nehemiah is in Persia, and he just finds out what the scenario is in Jerusalem. And so he, uh, he writes this uh, prayer to God, verse 6. God, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer. Your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Nehemiah doesn't give excuses. He doesn't pass the blame onto previous generations. He doesn't pass the blame onto anybody else. He doesn't separate himself from a group of people. They're the ones who did it. He comes with tremendous humility, comes before God with tremendous humility and acknowledges why they were in exile in the first place. Sometimes in our desire for restoration, to get out of exile. Sometimes the way we handle situations is we just say, I don't want to talk about the past. I don't want to go there. I don't want to talk about it with God. I don't want to talk about it with a therapist. I don't want to talk about it with the people that I have hurt. I want to let go of the past. I want to be done with that. I want to look to the future. I only want restoration. I only want this peace. And that does not lead to full restoration. Nehemiah says, I confess the sins that we Israelites, he wasn't even there in 586 when the exile happened. I, I confess, including myself and my father's family. I acknowledge the reason that we are here in exile in the first place. There's a boldness that is needed for that part of it. So what happens is, that there is, it's not an easy task for Nehemiah. Jump to, to chapter two. And, and he's gathering with the, with, the, with the remnant, with the Jewish people who have remained there. Verse 17, he says, I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. 
Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start building. So they began this good work. The people heard Nehemiah. They they began to trust Nehemiah because he had taken care of them and shown that he wasn't trying to make money off of them. And they said, let's do this. Let's start working. The wall around Jerusalem was about two miles long, which is about the Lakewood Loop, for those of you who are familiar with that part of our community there. That's a little bit more than two miles. But imagine standing somewhere on, on Lakewood Loop, just standing on the sidewalk, and the size of Lakewood Loop going around for two miles. Imagine the daunting task in front of you to build a wall that long all the way around Lakewood Loop. No machines, no trucks, no heavy machinery. Can you imagine how difficult that would be? To take one stone, it's two foot by two foot, incredibly heavy, and just plop one stone down, get it right in the right spot, and then put another stone next to it, one stone at a time, all the way around Lakewood Loop. The idea here is, God, strengthen my hands to get started. You cannot experience restoration unless you get started with the process of restoration. God, strength, there's, there's a thousand reasons why I can't finish this, why I look at this huge loop all the way around Lakewood and I say, there's no way I can get this done. A thousand reasons that you cannot get done what you want to get done, the restoration that you want to experience in your life. God, strengthen my hands to get started with one piece. What happens is a beautiful story in Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah gets, he starts to inspire them to start building. And the people, the families in around that, that wall, they start to look at the pile of stones rubble outside of their own home. And they think, well... I can't build the whole thing, the two miles around. That's ridiculous. And so that's why they haven't done it for decades. It just sat there in a pile of rubble. But they began to think under Nehemiah's leadership, I could build that part. I can't build the whole thing, but I could build that part. And then another family next door says, well, I could build that part. And that's what happens. One part at a time. Chapter 3 is a list of families by name who identified a section and said, we will build this part of the wall, and we will build this part of the wall. I love that it's mentioned by name, that this wasn't just some story, some fable, some really pretty little story about a man who comes by and builds a wall. This really happened. These are real people with real names who took real stones and piled them on top of other real stones and built the wall. God, strengthen my hands to get started, to take at least one stone, to do something, to do my part, my section here. The whole thing is daunting, but I can do my section. I can be a part of this. Strengthen my hands to get started. Restoration doesn't happen unless we get started with it. So a second example that we see in the Nehemiah story, we see it in in chapter 4. So what happens is we have chapter 2, it's about the families identifying areas, and then chapter 3 is celebrating those families, listing them by name. And in chapter 4, we start to see this transition of the people outside of the city. At first, they're making fun of Nehemiah and the building of the wall. They're mocking at it because, you know, you got one stone all the way around, and then, uh, you know, 
well, that, that was a trip. That was difficult. You know, you could walk over one stone, just kind of making fun of the whole thing. But the wall is starting to get a little bit higher. And the people outside are starting to get a little bit more nervous about this wall that's being built around Jerusalem that has been in ruins for decades. So they start to threaten and attack. And this is what Nehemiah says, chapter 4, verse 13. In response to the threats of attack from opposing nations, therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. If you don't hear anything from me today, if you don't hear anything from me this year, hear this. The Lord is great and awesome. So fight for your family, your sons, your daughters, your husband, your wife, your homes. Fight for your family. God, strengthen my hands to fight for my family. If you are successful at whatever the world defines success, you, you are just tremendous. You're doing incredibly well and climbing the ladder. You are a successful person, but your family is falling apart. Then you are still in exile. If you are living la vida loca, okay, and you're. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. If you figured out how to do that dance and you can consistently do it, but you're estranged with the group of people that God has provided for you, the, the family that God has put you in, the family that, that is your core group, whether it's your brothers or sisters or your parents or your kids or your spouse or whatever, if you are estranged with that group, then you are still in exile. For those of us who are parents, you know, sometimes we say or we believe, you know, our kids, they'll, they'll be fine. They're resilient. They'll figure things out the same way I figured things out when I was young and terrible things happened in our family. They'll be fine. It's not going to affect them. Kids are resilient, no doubt about that. And God can, does great restorative things in, in a lot of people's lives. But they need you. Your kids need you. Even your older kids that just you seem like, oh, they got it all together. They still need you. They need your love and your presence. They need you to fight for them. With regard to marriage, sometimes we say, oh, it's just hopeless. It is just, it's just, we don't, we don't even like each other anymore. We don't enjoy being with one another. We used to, but we don't even enjoy it anymore. It's just, it's just hopeless. We're better off without each other. But, but besides, do you know what she did? Do you know what he did? If I had 10 minutes to explain to you what he did, you wouldn't be talking to me about fighting for my family. When we say those things, we're treating that relationship like it's a contract. 
and someone has broken a contract, so then we can walk out of this relationship. It's not a contract. It's a covenant. It's a covenant that God wants us to fight for. Strengthen my hands to fight for my family, for my sons and my daughter, to fight for my wife, for you to fight for your husband, fight for our homes. We know what it's like to try to do that stuff on our own. We've tried days, weeks, months, seasons of trying to do this on our own, and it just, it just, we just, we just can't do it. And so that's what brings us to, the, to exile, to this place of despair. And so that's why we need to say, like Nehemiah, strengthen my hands, God. I need your help with this. The third example I want to look at in Nehemiah's story is really something that, that is woven throughout the whole story. And that is the, the, the reality of, of opposition for Nehemiah along this whole journey. So God, strengthen my hands to resist opposition. Because there will be opposition in the journey. If I continue the story from where we left off last time, chapter 4, verse 15. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all turned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. This is a great image. They were working on the stone with one hand and they held a weapon with the other. God, strengthen this hand to continue to do the work, to be involved with what's going on. And strengthen this hand to resist opposition. If you are on a journey from exile towards restoration, what is your opposition? What's getting in the way of that? Maybe it's friends who share that same struggle or addiction that you have. And they're not evil, but they do not like the idea of you getting freedom and them being stuck in exile. And so re resist that. Resist those relationships that are pulling you back down. Or maybe, maybe it's a coworker. Who, who says things at work like, you, you need to leave your spouse. That person is, is not good for you. you. You are not happy with that person. Time to move on. Time to get out. Again, that person's not evil. In my experience, people who say that kind of stuff, they're not evil. They just don't know your God. They just don't know the power of God working in our lives when we say, God, strengthen my hand because I can't do this on my own. There, there, there will be opposition. There will be bad days. There will be discouragement. The restoration process is a difficult process. It was for Nehemiah. It's for all of us to work through. There will be bad days, days of self-doubt, days where we just want to say, I give up. I give up. It's just too, it's too much. It's two miles of wall. I can't do it. Strengthen my hands to resist opposition. Do you see the balance in this phrase, strengthen my hands, the balance of, of God's part and our part? That Nehemiah didn't just stay in Persia and pray, God, would you rebuild the wall in Jerusalem? He left his cushy job, traveled a 1,000 miles across the desert, wrestled with the people in Jerusalem, wrestled with the people outside of Jerusalem, 
and one stone at a time helped to build the wall. He didn't sit idle. He didn't sit back and do nothing. He got involved. He used his hands and he asked God to strengthen those hands. He knew he couldn't do it on his own. He needed God to help him through that. The Bible says, God helps those who help themselves. Doesn't it? Okay, it actually doesn't. It doesn't say that. Just so you know. Don't quote me on that. But Nehemiah says, God, strengthen my hands. Strengthen my hands. We, we, I, I need you to give me strength to make that phone call. To make that call so that I can get started on a process of healing and restoration and freedom. God, I need your strength to sign up for that class at, at the church for financial peace or marriage Mondays or whatever. That sounds kind of scary to me. I don't want to be in a group. I don't want to be sitting in a group telling other people about my feelings or anything like that. It sounds awful. It sounds scary. Give me the strength to go somewhere where they will love me and help me experience restoration. Give me the strength, God, to reach out and get help from somebody else instead of being so prideful that we're, that we're just going to stay in the pit. We're in the pit. We can't get out on our own. Reach out and, and give me the strength to get help from someone. God, strengthen my hands so that I can experience restoration, so I can, I can rebuild the wall. God, come rescue me from my exile. The band's going to lead us in one final song called Rescue Story. God, you, you are my rescue story. As they sing this song uh, over you, you can sing with them or just, just think about the exile story and how much God wants you to experience restoration. Would you bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, I, I thank you that, once again, you want a breakthrough here in this room. That we can't sit here in our chairs and pray that other people change. That's not what you want from us. You don't want us to pray that, that, that other people get fixed. You want us to pray, God, strengthen my hands. In whatever way I can bring freedom and healing and forgiveness into the lives of, of people in my life. God, help me do that. Strengthen my hands to do that, God. Come rescue me from my exile. Res rescue me from the, from the pit. I want restoration, God. Strengthen my hands to do that. Amen.